I'll pray and then tell us uh, what we're going to be discussing today. God, thank you so much for your word. <clears throat> thank you for uh, what we just heard from Smed and uh, just the reminder of your undeserved favor uh, to evil men like us. God, I pray that we would, as we turn our attention to your word once again, to look at what worship is and how you are bent on being worshipped for your own glory um, and for the good of your people, that our hearts would be encouraged and that we would be made better uh, counselors, that we would offer better instruction to one another uh, for the sake of, of your glory and the good of your people as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, we talked last week. Uh, we started our, our class, Doxological Counseling, and uh, we, we said that we're discussing what it means to counsel to the glory of God and to help people become better worshipers. Uh, we're going to be discussing that over the next several weeks because we are all counselors, in a sense, in one way or another, formally or informally. We are all offering advice at one time or another, receiving advice, offering advice, and we want to do that well. We want to do that in a way that glorifies, magnifies, and esteems God. And so where we started last week was just discussing something that is essential and foundational to worship to understanding worship, and that is God's character, God's own glory and greatness. And so we discussed that God is infinitely great. He's eternally glorious. We can't add anything to how glorious God is. He is already, and before he made anything, he was infinitely great already. And because of that, uh, we see that everything that God did make, he made with a specific aim to bring himself glory, uh, to magnify his own goodness and greatness in the creation. And so that is what God desires most, is that he would be glorified, that everything he made, that he does, would bring him glory, and his glory would be displayed in those things. Therefore, counseling fits right in line with the purpose of all other things, and that is the glory of God. The goal of counseling for Christians must be in keeping with what God is after for everything else. And God's own stated aim for all things is that they would display his greatness and glory. Uh, Romans eleven thirty six, Colossians 1, 16 says that everything was made for him. Therefore, our goal in counseling is not to improve self-esteem, to heal emotions or memories, to repair people's brokenness, to help people forgive themselves, to be happier, to mend people's souls from past trauma, to fix or change other people, or merely to alter behavior. None of those things is the goal for a Christian who has the opportunity to instruct someone in counseling. And this really sets biblical counseling apart from every other counseling system. Truly biblical counseling. 
Uh, even things that get marked as Christian counseling or biblical counseling, if you're discerning, um, are not always in keeping with what Scripture teaches. No other counseling system aims at the glory and worship of God. No other counseling system. And so that's what we want to want to aim at, um, even when circumstances don't change. Right. The goal of, of counseling is not to change someone's circumstances, even because even when those things don't change, the chief end that we're after in counseling remains the same. And that is that God would be glorified, that the uh, person that you are intending to help would be a better worshiper of God. Uh, take briefly uh, Joseph as an example. You know, the story of Joseph, he was the 11th brother uh, or 11 of 12 brothers, uh, son of Israel. Very traumatic past. He was grievously sinned against by his own family. Uh, His dad didn't know he was alive for years. He was hated by his brothers, torn away from his family, thrown into a pit, left for dead before he was actually taken out of that pit and then sold into slavery by his own siblings. Then once he was in the land, diligently working, doing what is right, he was falsely accused by a woman whom he refused to even touch. He was wrongly imprisoned, forgotten about for two years by another inmate to whom he has shown tremendous kindness. That is a serious past of sin that involved sin against him. It would be amazing and interesting, actually, I think, to... Um, use him as a test case for, for secular counseling, what type of labels, diagnoses would he be the victim of in our day? What type of trauma would he be said to, to have uh, endured in the way that that should have impacted his life? But what do we see from Joseph? We see that Joseph, throughout all of those things, things that he was not in control of, he, one, ascribes the control to God for those things. You can look at Genesis 45, verses 5 and 8. He tells the ones who sinned against him, you sold me, but God sent me. So he ascribes the glory to God for where he ends up and even all of the details of those events. And then in 50.20 says to the same brothers, you meant what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so he's able to be a better worshiper of God, even when being grievously sinned against. And so the goal of uh, biblical counseling being the worship of God, Joseph would have been an easy counselee. Uh, he, was, he was intending to be made a better worshiper of God in those circumstances. And so today, as we talk more about what worship is, we want to answer two questions that you have uh, for you for you on the outline. And that is uh, you'll see that in one A and then two A. The first question is, what is worship? What is worship? We'll define and discuss worship and then we'll end our time asking the question, what has our triune God done for the sake of worship? For the sake of being worshiped, what has God in his triune nature done? And we'll look at how each distinct 
member of the Trinity actually is pursuing the worship of God. And so first, what is worship? I think that Donald Whitney in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, gives actually a helpful etymology of that word, uh, the way it's come into English. He says the word worship comes from the Saxon word. And if you have a better way to pronounce the Saxon word, I'd be open to hearing that. Worship, which later became worship. To worship God is to ascribe the proper worth to God, to magnify his worthiness of praise, or better, to approach and address God as he is worthy. As the holy almighty God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the sovereign judge to whom we must give account, he is worthy of all the worth and honor we can give him and then infinitely more. That is what it means to worship God, to ascribe the proper worth to him. And then John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew in their systematic theology, biblical doctrine, say this. Worship is the theme of salvation history, the supreme purpose for which believers were redeemed and the occupation with which they will be eternally enthralled. To worship the Lord is to ascribe to him the honor, glory, adoration, praise, reverence and devotion that is due him. Both for his greatness and for his goodness. And so let's turn our attention now to the scriptures. Uh, We'll look at Exodus and we'll spend some time here in Exodus chapter 34. We'll get a running head start. We'll back up into chapter 33. So Exodus 33, 17. And what we'll see is the the glory of God, worship in essence, even it's uh, it's hinted at in these in these definitions that we just got from Whitney and, and MacArthur and Mayhew. Worship is the response from men to God's revelation. Worship is the right response to God's revealing of himself. Uh, in short, that is what worship is. And so we'll talk about the different ways that that's, that that's done. But here in Exodus 32 and 34, or 32 through 34, we actually get a good picture of worship in the life of Moses. Um, interestingly enough, what Smed just preached on when he talked about Elijah going back to Horeb, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, This is the same location where we find ourselves in Exodus 32. And some interesting parallels between those passages. But here in Exodus 32, uh, or 33 rather, long time before Elijah, here's the context. Israel has just received the, the first 10 words, 10 commandments as we call them, from Moses. They've had a a general, the gist, if you will, of the law given to them in the Ten Commandments. So they know there is to be no other God before Yahweh who brought us out of Egypt. Moses goes back up the mountain, uh, receives more instruction from God. And then at the end of that 40-day, 40-night period... 
Israel has already broken the first of the Ten Commandments. We don't know what happened to Moses. Aaron, build us a God. Here's our ornaments. Make us a God. And so he does it under pressure from the people. In Exodus 33, Moses has to intercede and plead with God on Israel's behalf not to destroy the people. God yields and grants Moses the request not to destroy the people. But he says, I will not go with you into the land and I won't travel with you. And Moses, being a good, faithful intercessor, pleads with God, that's not good enough. If you're not going to go with us, then don't send me. Kill me now. This, it's not worth going. And God, little by little, gives in to Moses' request. And he says, well, I'll go with you, uh, singular you in the Hebrew, Moses. But I'm not going with all the people. My presence will be with you. And Moses still doesn't relent. And he pushes for more. And at the end of that back and forth intercession, God finally yields and says, okay, I'll go with y'all. I'll go with the people. My presence will go with you. And Moses wants assurance of that very thing, that he won't destroy the people on the way. And that's kind of where we find ourselves at the end of chapter 33. So I'll start at verse 17 and read. Um, This is from the ESV. This is, I think, a just more helpful translation of this passage that we're going to be looking at. So sorry, Scott. Exodus 33, 17. And Yahweh said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, full stop. Moses is still interceding for the people. They've just gone back and forth. He's asked, or what he is asking is, God, not to destroy the people, but go with us without destroying us. Be favorable to us in your presence with all of us. And then he makes the request, show me your glory. That word glory just means weight. It means weight. If you noticed uh, in what Smed read again, uh, the 666 talents of gold that uh, Solomon had each year, right? Why is the the talent mentioned, that 75-pound weight? That's to indicate something of the glory, the value that Solomon is bringing in annually to the kingdom. So glory has to do with weight. What they would do at this time in, in this period They would uh, actually weigh things that were valuable, weigh your precious metals, and whatever your weight was would inform people how well to esteem you in the community. So if you had lots of weight, lots of valuables, lots of precious metals, then you had lots of glory. Your esteem would be great. People would greatly esteem you, your worth. If you had not very much, then that would also tell people, inform people how much esteem and respect you were worthy of. Well, when it, this term glory, when it refers to God, indicates something of the same thing. The weight 
the worth, the value of God that then informs us how we should think and esteem God. And specifically in this context, because Moses is asking God to be favorable to the people when he goes, he says the the final request, so to speak, that he makes in verse 18, please show me your glory. He is asking not for something different, but show me the weight of your worth to be favorable to us specifically. Look at God's response to Moses' request, show me your glory. Yahweh says, I will make all my, not glory, but what? You see it? Goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before, or, and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God actually, in Moses asking to be granted a assurance of his favor and grace and mercy toward the people, show me your glory. God says, okay, I'll make my goodness pass before you. That's a way of saying, yes, I will do just that. God's glory in this passage is equated with his goodness. What is glorious and weighty about God that he's about to reveal to Moses should be equated with what is good about God. God's goodness and glory are one and the same in this passage. Verse 20. But God does say this, when this happens, Moses, verse 20, you cannot see my face, for man will not see me and live. And Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You get an interesting description. This passage that's about to unfold in chapter 34, God's described what he's going to do up front. You can't see my face. I'm going to put you, relocate you, situate you in a rock. And apparently the view that you're going to get in that small space is going to be able to be covered by a hand. I'll take my hand away when I pass and you'll see a glimpse of me passing by. Um, (laughs) Lots of implications from this text. This, what we're about to see unfold actually causes ripples through the rest of your Bible, as God describes his attributes. The rest of the authors of scripture pick up on this scene throughout scripture as they write, and they tie the same attributes of God together. Uh, For example, steadfast love and faithfulness. You see mercy and grace. Uh, These things go together because of this passage. This is the first time that God has revealed himself in this way. And so then we see the scene unfold in in verses uh, 5 through 8. So we'll jump to 34, 5 to 8. Yahweh descended in the cloud. And you can just picture this. It's very descriptive. Moses leaves the details in here as he recounts and records the event for us. Just imagine Yahweh descends in the cloud and stood with Moses there 
and did exactly what he described. He proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, here's his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear insert the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That is God's name. Not just his title, but representative of his character, his name. In God revealing his glory, showing his goodness, proclaiming his name, that's all one and the same. God's glory, God's goodness, his name or his character is the weight of who he is. And then he gives us these uh, essential attributes right up front. Mercy and grace. Slowness to anger. His abundance when it comes to loyal or steadfast love and faithfulness. You see those coupled together in scripture often. Mercy and grace. Steadfast love and faithfulness. And then all of those result in verse 7 and him keeping steadfast love and forgiving people. That is what it means for God to be glorious, to be good. Now, for our purposes, having seen that when Moses threw a crag in the rock, right? He gets a glimpse of God's glory as he peers through this rock. Barely sees what was described, God's back as God removed his hand. It seems that God is in a body here for him to descend and then stand and then pass by, move his hand. Notice Moses' response to that glimpse of God's glory in verse 8. What does Moses do? And Moses, not slowly but quickly, bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Worship is the right response to God's revelation. When God reveals his glory, the right response to man, the intended response is worship. That's the connection. As we talk about how great and glorious God is, that he possesses glory that always belonged to him, could not be changed or created. When we talk about that great and glorious God, well, when that's finally revealed in the, in the variety of ways that God does that, the only rational response from man is to then worship or ascribe worth that has just been revealed to him. When worship or when glory, the weight of God's worth, shines through in some way what has been created, the right response is to amen what God has just revealed. That's worship. Does that make sense? That is worship. And that's why we get these terms um, that we 
we read about in the, the definition from biblical doctrine, adoration, praise, reverence, that's man turning around and saying, yes, here's my response to those things. Worship. Something similar happens in Romans, Romans 12. If you turn to Romans 12, uh, Smet will get here soon. In Romans 12, Romans 12, as has often been observed, is the beginning of the practical instruction from, in the book of Romans. After 11 chapters of weighty, glorious doctrine, Paul unfolding the gospel, what God has accomplished for his own glory towards sinful men. Then Paul turns and says, now this is how you should respond. But back up a few verses to 1133. Before Paul instructs the Roman church how to worship, he actually practices worship as he writes. After describing the mercy, the great mercy of God and getting to the culmination of this in chapter 11, Paul bursts forth in this exclamation in verse 33, chapter 11 of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. As God has just revealed these things to Paul, Paul is just overcome as he pins Romans with how great and glorious God is. In his riches, that is the riches of his kindness, and the wisdom and the knowledge, he's just marveling on paper about God, about who God is and how God has revealed himself. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Nobody would do this. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? Again, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is consumed as he has just finished talking in so much detail for 11 chapters about the gospel. He doesn't burst forth in awe at the value of man. Oh, man must be so valuable. God decided to save him. What's on Paul's mind? Glory, the glory of God. The gospel and everything Paul just finished talking about from the cutting off of Israel to the grafting in of Gentiles so that he could graft in Israel once more. All of that and everything he's just finished talking about in the preceding chapters has been an unpacking of God's plan to glorify himself. It is about primarily the glory of God. And so after Paul's done worshiping on paper, verse uh, 1 of chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brethren, your turn, by the mercies of God, same thing he just finished talking about, to do something. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, that's a worship word, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul's amazed at what God has done, and so he worships, and then he encourages and instructs the Romans to do the same thing. 
Worship is the right response to God's revelation. Worship is our right response to God's revelation. So that serves as an Old and New Testament example where you see men rightly responding to beholding the glory of God. And so we can conclude then to know that God is infinitely glorious and the intended response of displaying that glory is that we would respond in worship. Wherever God is revealing his glory, then he intends worship. Wherever God is revealing his glory, he is intending the worship of his people. You get something uh, just as a helpful way if you look in 2B on your outline, worship words. Uh, a former professor, Ernie Baker, at the Masterson University, uh, he kind of introduced me to that language, worship words. I like that. Um, these are words that signal to the reader. Whenever we read, read scripture, when we come across these words, they signal that worship is in view. Uh, that either the speaker or the writer who's using this language is signaling in some way that this is where the person is ascribing worth. Uh, words like, and then you have a list, uh, believe, to believe God. Or trust God. That signals that we esteem him as trustworthy. That we are acknowledging his faithfulness. Uh, worshiping some characteristic of God. Uh, to call God blessed. Is another way of ascribing uh, glory to him. Worshiping. Uh, to bow. To exalt. To exalt. Uh, to fear God is a dominant theme in scripture. Um, fearing God. Fear is a worship word. It means that you are ascribing ultimate worth or acknowledging that this person's character or person or opinion is valuable, ultimately. Um, that's why fear of man is so often condemned in Scripture. Um, if you fear man, you're not fearing God, and you're ascribing worth to man's opinion of you, rather than worth to God's opinion of you. So fear works both ways. Whatever you fear, you, in a sense, are worshiping. Uh, we are getting a lot of these words in the Psalms, words like fortress, glorify. Uh, the psalmist acknowledge that God is their help, and so they are looking to him, not to other means. Honor, hope, know, to know God, to listen, that is to obey, same thing there. To love God, love God with your heart, mind, soul. That's another word that involves or requires worship. To magnify God, obey, um, offerings, that, that's worship language. Praise, refuge, rejoice. To, for God to be someone's rock is a worship word. Sacrifice, God being someone's salvation. Uh, savior, shield, shout. Sing, strength, submit, thank, trust. These are, are words that inherently involve worship. They, I'm not saying they mean the same thing as worship, but they do tell us that worship is happening when they're present. And so hopefully that's a helpful as you read your Bible, you'll notice those and, and those will, will signal to you that, hey, 
this person writing or speaking here is worshiping. And that's instructive, obviously, for us. If you want a good uh, place to see a lot of these in a short uh, short space, uh, look at Psalm 18. That's helpful. It's a little dangerous to go off my notes, but... Yep, we just read this in uh, in Psalm 22. Uh, go to Psalm 22. We just read this this morning, and I didn't notice it until I was reading it up here. Uh, but Psalm 22, verse 23, the, the psalmist in writing turns his attention to instruct the people. And they would have been instructed as they sang this song as a nation. Verse 23, you who, here's a worship word, fear Yahweh. Here's another one, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And what does it mean to do those things? Well, stand in awe of him. All those things go hand in hand to fear God, to praise him, to glorify him, to stand in awe of him, to stand in awe of who he is. Those all go hand in hand. All right, let's let's go to the last page of our outline and answer the last question. What does it mean if, if, if we understand that worship is the right response to God, of, of man to God's revelation. When God reveals his glory, he intends worship. Then what has God done for that end? What ha- has God, not just generally, but each person of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, what does scripture tell us that they have done to secure the worship of God's people? And we, we won't be able to get through all of these, but we'll look at a few of them. The Trinity, um, just briefly, we believe that Scripture reveals that God is one, Deuteronomy 6 says. Uh, Hero Israel, Yahweh, our Lord is one. He is only one. He's not three gods. But in scripture, from the very first pages, in chapter uh, 1 of Genesis, we see that there's a plurality to God. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Verse 2, the spirit was hovering over the waters. Who's not the heaven, who's not the earth, he's the spirit. But he's there, active in creation. And so there's a distinction between the members of the Godhead they formed different they performed different roles the father did not come and die for sinners but the son did and the son does not send the father to indwell the members of the church but he sends the spirit and so there's a distinction within the godhead even though they are one which is just another testimony to God's wisdom because as long as the doctrine of the trinity has been around 
no false religion has adopted or even attempted the same idea in their religion. Uh, it's just not reproducible. Uh, and that's because it's from God's wisdom. It, it is uh, inherent in the one true God and can't be duplicated by a false religion. And so what has each member of the Trinity done to secure worship? First, God the Father has created for the sake of worship. He has created for the sake of worship. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare his glory, declare the glory of God. And Romans 1, you can turn there. Romans 1 details what God intends the the revelation that he has embedded in creation to produce in us. And that's not just in, in Christians, but that is in Christians and unbelievers alike, what he intends. Why is God's wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? Romans 1.19 says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. God has made visible what is invisible in just creating. Specifically, his eternal power and divine nature. They've been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they, the truth suppressors, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him. Notice honor is a worship word. Because they know God and they have seen his glory, everybody has seen God's glory in creation. Psalm 19 says, if you felt the warmth of the sun, then you owe God worship and honor. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. Thankfulness is a right response to God's revelation. But instead, they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So God, in revealing his glory in creation, intends men to turn around and then honor and thank him. That is, worship. God also, God the Father also seeks for worshipers, or seeks for the sake of worship. Uh, that is what he is after in salvation. If you uh, ever wondered, why would God save me? There's your answer, at least one of them, <laughs> to worship him. Jesus said this to the Samaritan woman. That's the John 4 reference. The father seeks such worshipers or seeks such to worship him. And that has to happen in spirit and in truth. So what is the father after? He's after worshipers in salvation. And then 3C, he saves for the sake of worship. All of those glorious truths in Ephesians 1 about being predestined and what the Son does and what the Spirit does, all a part of redeeming man. The ultimate purpose, the refrain, is to the praise of, to the praise of, to the praise of his glorious grace. Three times in verse 6, 12, and 14, to the praise of. Why does God save sinners? To worship, to receive worship from those sinners. That is why God saves sinners. And each member of the Trinity has a role in salvation, as we'll see. Next, God the Son. 
what has God the Son done for the sake of worship? Well, in his earthly life, at least, God the Son actually modeled worship. He lived life as the perfect worshiper. First Peter 2, that reference there, God, in his suffering even, he entrusted himself to a faithful creator, faithful judge, God. He, by entrusting himself to the Father, Jesus was modeling what it means to trust the Father in suffering, in the midst of suffering. And trust being, uh, he, he, he found that God was worthy of his worship, worthy of being uh, counted worthy and trusted even in his suffering. And he obeyed the Father. He said that the purpose of all good works in Matthew five sixteen was that they would, people would glorify God so that do your good works before men so that they may see them and give glory to God, the Father. The purpose of our good works and Jesus' good works was that people would glorify God, not praise us, right? Um, in John 6, he said that this was his very food, to do what pleased the Father. He, he referred to that as his food. Jesus, what was he consumed by? What, was he, his, what were his thoughts preoccupied by in his earthly ministry? Well, it was worship. He lived life as a worship to bring glory to God so that people would see what Jesus did and say, wow, God is great. Then you get some other uh, activities that are explicitly related to worship. Things like singing, things like praying, Jesus at the Last Supper. Uh, go to Mark fourteen twenty six. I love that Mark includes this in his gospel sort of at a, as a side note. He just mentions it and keeps moving. But the last thing they did by Mark's account. Thirteen or uh, fourteen twenty six. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I don't know how often you've thought about Jesus singing, uh, Jesus worshiping God through song, and then that's even uh, mentioned again in Hebrews two. I will sing your praises. <laughs> Jesus is heaven's worship leader. Jesus sings to God, sings God's praises. And then he prayed uh, often, oftentimes in the Gospels, they recount Jesus drawing away from people and praying uh, in Hebrews because of his reverence, he was heard. So Jesus revered God and depending on him even through prayer. And so God the Son models worship in those ways, even for us. And then God the Spirit. God the Spirit actually wrote the book on worship. When, when God the Spirit authored the scriptures, every word Peter says, you can go there. First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter 1. When God wrote every word of the scriptures to reveal the glory of God, it was so that he would 
be worshipped, that God would be worshipped by those who hear these words and read these words. Peter writes, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write exactly what God intended to be put into Scripture. And since the Scriptures are God's self-attestation to his own glory, we should conclude that God intended, God the Spirit, when he authored the Scriptures, intended God to be worshipped by what he wrote in, the, in Scripture. Uh, the Deuteronomy 31 references is Moses' summary of wh- why the Torah exists. He says it's so that you would fear and obey God. Fear, obey, those are worship words. When the Spirit moved Moses to write, it was so that people would worship God. And then the 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18 reference is uh, one of the clearest verses in Scripture about how God sanctifies believers. Uh, We'll look at that really quickly. 2 Corinthians 3. 17 and 18, this is packaged in a section of scripture that mentions glory quite a bit if you look at this passage on through chapter 4, verse 8. But here in, in chapter three sixteen, or excuse me, 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all With unveiled face, that means you're converted first. There is no veil blinding you to the glory of God. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. What's the Spirit doing in sanctifying as he sanctifies believers? He is revealing the glory of God to them. And this is a, a very helpful verse to, to think about in the, you know, as a counseling paradigm. When you are instructing people, whether that's parents, you're instructing your kids, whether that is husbands and wives helping instruct one another, whether you're siblings one to another, or other members in the body, If you really want them to change, what needs to be an inseparable part of our counseling? What is the spirit doing to change that person that you're counseling? Well, what he's doing to change them is not separated from them beholding, as in a mirror, something. The glory of God. And there are a plethora of ways to do that. I'm very excited to talk about the different ways that we can practically help one another solve issues that come up in counseling. Not separated from the greatness and glory of God. We have 66 books that unfold for us the greatness of God that offers us then help for how we should respond and worship God the chief of which you see as the last point on your outline is the cross. And we'll talk about next week then 
how to think about the gospel in counseling. Uh, The gospel is not the only consideration to give in your counsel. It is a primary consideration to consider in your counseling, but it's not the only one. And so we'll talk about how to rightly balance your gospel, um, how to be rightly gospel-centered in your counseling. And so, sorry I didn't leave any, any time for questions. I'm sticking around. Uh, if, you, if you have any questions or if you want to follow up, but thank you for, for being here. We will see you next week. You're dismissed.